morning. For those that don't know me, I'm Wayne Kerrison and it's my privilege this morning to be visiting you via the screen. I've got a question for you. Can you remember the last time you washed a rental car before you returned it? Or perhaps when you stayed in a motel or a hotel, you actually made the bed in the next morning? Probably not. Most people don't unless they work for the rental car company or are a house-keeping uh, uh, person at the hotel. And why, why is that? Why don't we do that? Well, I suspect it's because the motivation that comes with ownership is missing. Today we start a new series that Ben has uh, very creatively titled Barnes, Talents, Camels and Needles. And all will become clear over the next four weeks, but I want to give a spoiler alert. Um, weeks two to four, we'll be exploring three pictures that Jesus used to talk about how we should use the resources that we have uh, with us. They were illustrations that resonated with his hearers, and I believe can resonate and speak to us today too. But I want to start right back at the base of our knowledge today. I heard of a man who, when it came to get ready for church on a Sunday, gathered up all the coins and notes that he'd earned during the week and he threw them all up in the air and on the basis that God could grab what he wanted and whatever else fell was his. And so uh, he had his offering made that way. I trust that's not our base of knowledge as we contemplate this this morning. So what is our uh, base of knowledge. I want to explore from the text starting right at the beginning. Yes, right back in the beginning. In the beginning, God, Genesis 1 tells us. That's how our Bible starts. And over the next two chapters of Genesis, the facts of creation are laid before us in two succinct, crystal clear accounts. In chapter 1, Moses, whom we believe to be the author of at least uh, parts of Genesis, presents in dramatic verbatim the day-by-day accounts of the first six days of creation. And at the end of each day, there's a text that says, and it was good. And then at the end of chapter 1, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And then chapter 2 begins with the purposes of the seventh day of creation and uh, goes on to relate the forming of what we call the pinnacles of God's creation. Adam from the dust of earth and then Eve from the rib on Adam's side. And I believe this is the first recorded anaesthetic and surgical transplant using the stem cell approach. I'm only kidding you. And then it tells of Adam and Eve's placement in an earthly paradise, the Garden of Eden. Our record of creation is God speaking into existence the earth and its environs, the heavens, the seas and land, the trees and plants and animals, birds and sea creatures, and then, of course, Adam and Eve. Perhaps before I go any further, I should declare my position. I believe unequivocally that the Word of God, the entire Bible, is the inerrant truth from God as recorded by real people, inspired by his Holy Spirit. So what I'm really saying is that I believe the Genesis record in chapters 1 to 2 as the facts of the seven days of creation. 
days as we understand them, defined as it says in the text, bound by morning and evening. 24-hour cycles. Not millions of years and definitely not billions of years. Now, in case you need corroboration from somebody with a greater theological authority than myself, Jesus of Nazareth, Son of God, the Christ, believed the Scripture's account of the world's origins. And so do I. God spoke into existence the earth and its environs. This was so clearly God's creation, not man's, but his. So what about the so-called pinnacles of God's creation, Adam and Eve? In uh, verse 26 of chapter 1 of Genesis, we read, <coughs> "Excuse me." Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground, so that they may rule over. And the Hebrew meaning behind that English word rule is to subjugate, to bring under control, to have dominion, reign or rule over. And so that verse is literally saying man is to rule over God's creation, to have the responsibility for a creation that is not man's but God's. Here is the creator and we understand God and Jesus and the Spirit of God involved in that, choosing to put man in as the pinnacle of creation, in charge of creation as a steward or a caretaker of their creation. And some have expressed that in saying it's a divine mandate. Genesis 2 verse 15 puts it like this. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Hebrew behind that phrase is to protect or put a hedge around it, to preserve and to attend to. So what is the outworking of this? What is the implication of this? If this is God's design, plan or will... Is it a sin if man does not use this dominion responsibly? If man falls short of this obligation and fails to take care of it, is it a sin? At present, we see governments and companies variously trying to recover from past practices as to land management and the stewardship of our resources, even to the air we breathe. And I'm reminded of the uh, disastrous bushfires that swept through Victoria and some of New South Wales and from that the past practices appear to have left an undesirable legacy for us. So this relationship and responsibility between man on one hand and the creation on the other were understood though not necessarily adhered to right throughout scripture. For instance in the fifth book of the Old Testament Deuteronomy um, Moses says in chapter 10 verse 14 to the Lord your God belong the heavens even the highest heavens the earth and everything in it here Moses is addressing the children of Israel and reminding them of the base knowledge of the relationship between the creator and the created reminding them that they and creation 
are not theirs, but his. David, who wrote many of the Psalms in the Old Testament and then went on to become King David of the Israelites, instead of claiming kingship over his kingdom uh, as he might be expected to, in Psalm 24, 1, he writes, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it, as he worshipped God by that psalm. The all, all the earth and everything in it is God's. So David is saying, it's not mine, but his. This concept of the relationship between creator and created continues in the New Testament, the newer part of the Bible. And uh, in the Gospel of Mark, the second book in the New Testament, Jesus is in a discussion with some of the religious leaders of the day about marriage and divorce. In Mark 10, 6, we hear Jesus say, But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. So not only does Jesus know his Bible, he believes in it as the truth, but he was there when the earth and all in it were created. He had a hand in it, so to speak. Not us, but him. The Apostle Paul, who wrote many of the books in the uh, letters in the New Testament, um, understood also that the created order was God's. In his letter to the Corinthian church, the first letter he wrote to them, in verse uh, 26 of chapter 10, he echoes what David has written in his psalm. He says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Paul is saying, It's not mine, but his. And it's a very different attitude to this scene from Finding Nemo. That clip wouldn't be funny if they were saying his, his, his. It's only funny because it's mine, mine, mine. And even if we continue to the last book in the uh, New Testament, Revelation, and read through that, it becomes increasingly obvious that God will reclaim sovereignty rule over his creation. He has plans for his creation. And in chapter 21 of Revelation, in the vision of John, verse 1 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And in verse 5, He who seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. So to summarise what I've been saying, God created all we see, it is his, not ours. And we are charged with having dominion over God's creation in the sense of stewarding it, managing it, keeping and caring for it. So this, I think, raises some questions for us. What might the implications be for the understanding for us from this? I think John Wesley had a really worthy attitude. When he learned that his house had been destroyed by fire, he exclaimed, the Lord's house burn, one less responsibility for me. If we could hang on so loosely as he did. How does our Western concept of land ownership stack up when we consider this? 
Do we echo the pelicans? Or do we, like the indigenous Australians, the first Australians, regard land ownership uh, fit better? What does this say to us about our practical everyday life and the use of resources available to us? If everything belongs to God, how am I supposed to operate? I think God's charge and promise to Abraham way back in Genesis 12 might shed some light on this for us. In verses 1 to 3 of 12, it says, The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. What a thing to speak into Abraham's life. And this passage has for a long time been summarised as we are blessed to be a blessing. All of God's people, that is people who respond to the call of God on their life through Jesus Christ, God's Son, are called to be a channel for the blessings God has for us so that they flow through us to others. Blessed to be a blessing. And surely this must be a distinctive of a Christ follower. So, what if we changed our perspective from one of my, my, mine to one of his, his, his? Instead of thinking, say, the land we build on is ours to do whatever we fancy, to a mind says it says we are perhaps renting it and when we pay land tax and rates. Here it's appropriate that I declare my own situation. My wife and Janet and I have the good fortune to have been able to build a home on a block of land that we bought and although we own the house and land in a deeper sense, we are just stewards of it. So we make sure it's insured to protect its value, maintain to protect its structural integrity, and Janet does a wonderful job of looking after the garden for us. And although on our passing to God's eternal glory, hopefully sometime in the future, the value of the property will flow through to our three sons, we also have a responsibility to steward for their sakes too. In keeping with a little line in Proverbs 13.22 which says, a good person leaves an inheritance for their children's children. Now, I'm mindful that not everybody is able to do that because of circumstances, but we seek it as an encouragement. But that owning requires us, I believe, to be even more unstinting in using what we have for God's purposes. And in times other than this current coronavirus pandemic, for us, it means being hospitable to visitors and giving space and a bed and meals to people who have nowhere else to stay. My reading of the Bible tells me that God has trusted us with his creation. And it's like the elephant in the room this morning is the question, do we trust God to the extent that we're free enough to become channels of blessing to others? Or is the sense of entitlement and ownership, the feature of our thinking and indeed living. You see, in God's economy, 
ownership is vastly different. The Bible tells us that we're here but for a moment, that our lives are but a puff of smoke compared to eternity. James 4.14 reminds us about that. So hanging on to what we own wouldn't make a lot of sense for a Christian. And in all the funerals I've conducted over years, I've never yet seen a U-Haul trailer behind the hearse. You cannot take your possessions with you, although some have tried unsuccessfully. The story is told of a miserly man who didn't want his ex-wife to get hold of his stash of cash, so he arranged with the funeral director to wear a money belt inside his shirt, and uh, he stuffed that with his money, and uh, it was to be buried with him. When his wife came to a private viewing, she realised what was going on, and so she removed the money, and uh, when the funeral director discovered this, he was about to call the police, but she said, oh, no, no, I wrote a cheque for him and put it back in its place, and uh, so we can't take it with us. We are called to be a blessing and to have as our base knowledge this foundation of our relationship with God, right back at the beginning, this basic foundation. All I have is not mine, but his. Our hands are wonderful things when they work, designed by God to hold things. But a question for each of us this morning as I wrap up is, do our hands grasp or do they hold loosely? And I'll leave you with this quote from Martin Luther, the 15th century Protestant reformer. He said, I have held many things in my hand and have lost them all. But whatever I have placed in God's hands, that I still possess. Let me pray. Father God, I would pray simply that your word would resonate in our hearts this day and that you would cause us to uh, evaluate what each of us individually does before you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Wayne, for bringing the word to us this morning. And we're going to finish our service this morning by worshipping together. So I just enjoy, um, invite you to join in with us as we sing.